Listen as Dr. Stephen Pipe from the University of Michigan and Nigel Key from the UNC School of Medicine discuss laboratory measurement of hemophilia gene therapy products and factor activity. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.isth.org for more information. Steve, in the hemophilia gene therapy trials, the sustained plasma levels of the plotting factor that's of interest is a critical endpoint. And so clearly there's interest in how best to measure this. And do we see any problems with the, the ability to measure it? Would you like to talk a little bit about uh, what we've observed thus far in the clinical trials? Yeah, so so this is maybe beyond you know just what the therapeutic target is. I think um, you know there's been lots of discussion about what kind of factor level is meaningful to make a phenotypic change for a patient, and uh, in the lowest doses or lowest factor levels, that has the the most impact for changing the phenotype. So even getting patients out of the severe range to the moderate and mild range has the most dramatic impact. But there's continued uh, lifestyle impact for the patient as they approach uh, the normal range. The question then is, is what is the assay that's telling you that you've reached those success endpoints? And I think this is where the real challenges are. We, we've been struggling for years, of course, with comparison of factor levels between labs, and that's when we're dealing with the natural factor eight uh, molecule, or at least facsimiles of recombinant versions that are very close to the natural. We've already seen the impact when you start bioengineering the molecule and how that uh, creates significant variability between laboratories. Within the clinical trials, the other observation that has been somewhat of a, a challenge is we are consistently seeing a discrepancy in the factor activity readout by a one-stage assay as compared to the chromogenic assay. Um, this has been true for the factor eight trials as well as for the factor nine trials. For factor eight, that ratio is about 1.6 fold uh, with the one stage being higher than the chromogenic. And uh, the factor nine trials, in which now almost all of them are utilizing this hyperactive Padua variant, uh, that same discrepancy has been observed with one stage being considerably higher than the chromogenic. With such limited numbers of patients early on, I don't think there's any clear evidence that one assay is closer to the true hemostatic correlation for the patient. So I don't think we have enough information to say the chromogenic is the truth for the patient, if you like, or is it closer to the one stage, or is it somewhere in between? Um, I think this is really important from a payer perspective, because if there's any sort of model where payment for gene therapy is gonna be linked to the outcome for the patient, um, a focus on factor levels could be challenging, particularly if patients are in the lower register of, of the levels. So if you have, for instance, a 20% uh, one-stage level, but your chromogenic is 12%, is that clinically relevant? If you're at the cusp of 
in the six to ten percent range on one stage, but on the chromogenic, you're sub five percent. Does that have any implications for what you deem a success for that trial? I think at the upper bounds, it becomes less relevant. Um, as you know, for the factor eight trials, by one stage assays, some patients have been well above 100%. So if their chromogenic assay is, say, 75% or 60%, it, does that have anything of, of meaning for, for a particular patient outcome? I, I think not. So uh, I think it really becomes a, a matter of what, for an individual patient, do they get for a measurement, what's available at your laboratory, and then um, what is the clinical phenotype now for the patient? Are they able to stay off prophylaxis? Um, when they have trauma, do they need to treat anymore? Or if they need surgery, do they need any uh, ex additional exogenous factor on top of that? So we may be struggling with this laboratory discrepancy uh, issue for quite a while as we learn how to adapt to the clinical care for these patients. One of the other observations from um, the Padua trials, uh, which is of, of notable interest to me, is there is sig often significant differences just based on the reagents that are used in your particular laboratory to measure the Padua variant. A number of the trial sponsors now are doing field studies where they are sending recombinant versions of the Padua variant to the various laboratories and getting a sense of which reagents tend to read on the low end for the one-stage assay and which tend to read on the high end because that's going to be important information for clinicians when they're following these patients over the long term to know where their patient's activity fits within the scope of all the different reagents that are used out there. Yeah, there's a certain deja vu about all this with the development of bioengineered proteins uh, products over the last few years and the discrepancies that have been noted um, and discussed at length about you know many of these that exist with many of these. Um, and I think there have been unreal expectations in terms of what a clinical lab can do, most clinical labs can do in terms of customizing assays for particular products. Uh, one of the variables you mentioned was what your lab does. And we both practice in the United States. I understand that these um, pods are being produced for an international audience. But if we have 130 hemophilia treatment centers in this country, uh, I don't know what the latest um, polls will show, but very few of those do a chromogenic assay still. I mean, the truth is that at the end of the day, the one-stage assay dominates. Um, I think it's better in Europe, but I don't think it's by any means uniform that both sets of assays can be done. And certainly uh, in many developing countries, I think that the simplicity and the experience with the one-stage assay is where it's at. So the question to you, I think, is uh, how, how productive is it to have this conversation at length? It will be something we've done before, like I say, but we've we've had to settle on when in doubt, over treat or at least go with a one stage assay. And some of it is clinical gestalt. And do you, you see that gene therapy would be the impetus to develop new assays in each lab? Yeah. I I mean, certainly for us to be prepared to participate in these trials, you know, we wanted to have access to chromogenic assays to supplement the one stage. We were 
already on that path for factor eight chromogenic. Um, we never really conceived that we were going to need a factor nine chromogenic until the Padua variant became the, the predominant transgene. And it's clear that that discrepancy is there with, with that construct. So we've in turn, you know, made sure that we had a factor nine chromogenic available, but you know, these take a lot of effort. Most hemophilia clinicians aren't going to have that much influence at their particular institutions. So they'll be reliant probably on send outs for uh, these types of, of readings. I certainly wouldn't be advocating for every hemophilia center to make sure they have, you know, both factor eight and factor nine chromogenics. I don't think it's going to be that important for day-to-day -day management. I think if they just benchmark with a send out lab uh, to know what the relative readings are, um, I think having some knowledge about whether your center uses one stage reagents that read at either extremes of high or low for the one stage readout, I think is at least useful information to know. But I, I think you're right, ultimately it's gonna come down to the individual patients. What, what are their clinical needs? Um, and uh, that will be the strongest driver of how we manage these patients going forward. I think there's one other point you made that clearly this is most relevant or most pertinent to patients who are at the low end of the response, the necessity to monitor clinical events and really sort of ascribe a phenotype based on those um, rather than the factor eight or nine level alone, this is the group where it's most important and getting the maximal information, I think, out of both assays for those patients is really what we should be focusing on. But as you say, for the patient who's at 75% one stage, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, plus or minus 20% for most situations clinically. But I think the wisdom in, in monitoring clinical events as well as factor endpoints for these trials is really essential to see if, if any patterns emerge. Yeah, and, and this may be one of the utilities of the of the registries. You know, the, the sponsored trials are going to have probably a, at least a five-year obligation for follow-up. That, that should be enough time to assess the clinical phenotype in the patients, but might not be enough time to accumulate data on major surgeries and their level of protection, etc. So that's one more rationale for encouraging these national and even uh, international registries to collate these data over the very long term um, so we can understand better what the individual levels mean for those clinical scenarios. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.